Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome everyone uh, who's here with us in the building at the Institute of Government and joining us online for this IFG event on the Autumn Statement 2022. I'm Hannah White and I'm Director of the Institute for Government. I'd like to thank SIPFA, the Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy, for uh, supporting this event. Uh, I should say we'll have a video and a sound recording of the event available on our website, so if you'd like to watch it back at any time, uh, that should be there within uh, a few hours of the event. Um, If you're watching us online, you can start sending in your questions as soon as you like via Slido. Um, If you're in the room, please start thinking as soon as you like about the questions you would like to ask to our excellent panel. Um, And we will be live tweeting from IFG events. Um, using the hashtag IFGAutumnStatement, so do tweet along. Uh, So, as I say, I'm delighted uh, that you've all been able to join us here. We've got uh, an excellent panel to discuss yesterday's statement. Uh, We have Ben Chu, who is economics editor of BBC Newsnight, Richard Hughes, chair of the OBR, Gemma Tetlow, who is our chief economist, and joining us on the screen, uh, Nick Davies, who is a programme director here at the Institute for Government. So we've got plenty to, uh, to, to, to ask about, so I'll, I'll kick off. We'll probably do about 40 minutes uh, of um, discussion on the platform and uh, 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 questions from me, and then we'll go to questions in the room. Richard, can I kick off with you? Um, looking at uh, uh, your, your report from yesterday, there's quite a striking uh, account in the foreword uh, about the process you had to go through to get uh, to, to, to your um, forecast. Can you just talk us through some of the difficulties uh, you experienced uh, in, in putting together this latest set of forecasts? And I guess I'm thinking both from a sort of political point of view, it's clearly a period of um, considerable political turmoil, but also from an economic point of view, given the uncertainties um, we're facing at the moment. Sure. Um, and thank you very much for, for having us. And I should say thank you for hosting us a second time, because you also hosted our press conference yesterday. So we really appreciate um, the support you provide to, to the OBR. Um, to be frank, the, the, the economic volatility of the last six months, I think, has been the most difficult thing to contend with um, as a forecaster. And I, I've now been doing this job for, for two and a half years. And, and um, in that, we've been trying to make head or tails of a once-in-a-century once pandemic and what that meant for the economy and public finances and an extraordinarily novel set of uh, uh, policy responses to that, including the furlough scheme, business loans, um, uh, and, and, um, and, the, and the response on both the fiscal and monetary policy side. So kind of as, as, a, as a modeler and as a forecaster, trying to understand the implications of these unusual idiosyncratic shocks um, of the sort that this country hasn't faced in a generation or generations is an enormous challenge in and of itself. And, and the same is true of this latest energy shock. Um, you know, so, some, some people in, in, in this room will remember the last energy crisis in, in, in this country. I think I was, I was very young um, in the 1970s and, and can't say I was, I was you know, focused on my cost of living at the age of, <laughs> at the age of three or four um, during, the, um, during the, the oil crisis. And so thinking through what an energy shock means for the UK economy um, in the context today compared to what you know, what the, you know, what uh, what history was like with a very different makeup of where we get our energy and how we use it in our economy um, is also a huge challenge. So, from a forecasting point of view, I think we got we got used to in the 1990s uh, for, forecasters and economic analysts 
analyzing a period of high and stable growth, and then post-financial crisis forecasters and economic analysts got used to analyzing a period of low and stable growth with a kind of shock in the middle. Um, shocks now seem to be coming with alarming frequency um, and, and alarming variety. Um, and so as, as a forecaster trying to make sense of those, trying to provide a basis for policymakers to make decisions, it's, an, it's a very big analytical challenge. It's a big challenge for economists. It's one which makes you want to draw on expertise from as wide an array of people uh, as you can, as we did during the pandemic, um, talking to the, uh, the epidemiological community um, and in the context of putting this forecast together, talking to people who understand energy markets um, and looking at, uh, looking at prospects for energy. So I think from a forecasting perspective, uh, that was by far the biggest challenge of putting this forecast together. I think not, un- not unrelated to that um, and abstracting from just what happened in the context of this forecast, I-, I think the country has gotten into a pattern of kind of fiscal policymaking on the fly. In that, and, and it happened partly out of necessity during the pandemic, which was that governments were presenting, making major fiscal policy announcements outside the context of a single budget which puts it all together, packages it all up with a forecast, with everything explained in a comprehensive way about how the world has changed from the last time we talked to you about the budget to this next time that I'm talking to you about the budget. And um, there were some good excuses for that. Um, You couldn't wait to announce the furloughs. The furlough scheme was announced a few days after my predecessor, Robert Choate, had presented um, the forecast and Rishi Sunak had just done a budget. But he had to say, look, people are going to lose their jobs if I don't do something. And so he had to come out and say, announce a multi-billion pound intervention, massive, unprecedented government paying 70% of people's wages. Um, everyone knew it was going to have enormous fiscal consequences, but people knew it was necessary. And there was an, there was a, there was an acceptance that, that needed to happen. Um, I mean, what, what, what emerged over time then, however, was a pattern of saying, well, I'm going to now make a fiscal announcement whenever it suits uh, the government's timetable, whether it's inside or outside of a, outside of a budget, and that also happened, you know, even before this event in September. You had announcements about health policy um, and uh, you know, the health and social care levy and, and the NHS budget outside of a fiscal event, um, which were also then taken uh, taken as precedence. So, um, and and as somebody who's worked in fiscal policy making for a long time, both in the Treasury and then I used to work in the International Monetary Fund, advising countries about good fiscal policy making, one of the sort of central pieces of advice you give to governments is, you know, do it all at once, do it once a year, and do it in the context of a comprehensive forecast covering the next five years, so every, everybody understands your strategy, and they understand how your strategy adds, adds up to what you say your fiscal objectives are. And I think over time, we've kind of gotten out of that habit, partly, out, as I say, partly out of necessity, but then it's, it's also become uh, sort, of, sort of partly, you know, uh, something which is, some, has evolved as a, as, a, as a pattern of behavior. And so I think in that context, as a forecaster, you're kind of partly playing catch up with what's been announced, as well as trying to inform the next set of announcements. And, you, and, and I think in the process, you lose something of the kind of comprehensiveness and transparency around the process that comes from just packaging it all up, putting it in a budget, putting it alongside a forecast, and explaining it to everybody all at once in one event. And so maybe the, the, the sort of Quoting uh, and, and, and Truss's sense that the ABR forecast was, was less essential, was, we should understand it in that context. I think so. Yeah. Gemma, can I ask you, what did we learn yesterday about the challenges that uh, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak are, are facing and their priorities? So I think in terms, of, in terms of the macro size of the challenge and their priorities, a lot of stuff was leaked out in advance. And that was a very careful management of the reaction so people knew what was coming and there was no shock and horror in the aftermath of it. But I think sort of 
taking a step back and thinking about what we, what we did learn yesterday, on the challenges they're facing, and I think the one thing that really stood out for me was the figures from Richard's forecast on household disposable incomes, that household incomes are going to fall by 7% over this year and next year, just vastly bigger than anything we've seen in the post-war period. And I'm sure Rich can say more. He was sort of alluding to it in his comments just then that this is because we've seen an energy shock and the way that impacts the UK is it's less of a big issue for our production because we're not so energy intensive as we were in the 1970s, um, but much bigger issue for household finances because that's where we use a lot of gas in particular in heating households. So um, that's the big challenge. Um, The reality is there was little the government could or did do about that. This is just the reality of what happens to an economy that's dependent on energy imports when you have a big energy price shock. Um, So there was a bit of action to ease the pain of that in the short term, but there wasn't much that Hunt did or really could have done to cushion that. Although I think one of the the background politics as we run up to the next election will be that incredibly big squeeze on household incomes. Um, In terms of the sort of fiscal priorities that I think were spelt out yesterday. Um, One thing that stood out for me was the announcements of new fiscal targets and a path for debt and deficit, which was a much more permissive fiscal target than we've had in recent years and much less headroom built in against that. So Hunt saying that he's happier with a a looser path for borrowing and debt than previous chancellors have had. Um, the, the, there were significant measures to try and bring down borrowing over the medium term, split roughly 50-50 between tax and spend, so more of a reliance on tax rises uh, than spending cuts compared to what, for example, George Osborne did back in 2010. Um, in terms of the package, the types of tax rises, um, I suppose with my our sort of IFG tax policy-making um, interests in mind, there wasn't much evidence in what was announced yesterday of some overarching strategy or objectives for the tax system. This was a set of measures that were broadly trying to raise revenue in a way that was least painful, Um, so relying on fiscal drag, inflation to bring in more money rather than overarching strategy here. Um, So I don't think we really learned much about Jeremy Hunt's views on what should the structure of the UK tax system be longer term if, as seems quite likely, we want to raise more money to fund the kind of public service quality and scope that Jeremy Hunt alluded to in his speech, but perhaps at the moment we don't really have the money allocated to deliver on that. And which takes us very nicely uh, to my question to you, Nick. Um, What's your assessment of the implications of the announcement yesterday for public services? So the Chancellor said that the Conservatives wouldn't leave our debts to the next generation. And while that may or may not be true, it's certainly the case the government has largely left its spending cuts to the next parliament. So uh, he provided uh, quite a lot of additional funding in the next two years for schools, the NHS and social care, but £22 billion of cuts across all day-to-day spending have been penciled in for 2025-26 to 2027-28. For those favoured services, this is quite a bit more generous than the funding announced at the spring statement earlier this year when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor, and probably a better settlement than could have been realistically hoped for by many who work in those services. I think the problem for public services and the Conservatives' electoral prospects is this is still not enough to see most services return to pre-pandemic performance levels by 2025. And that's the same as the conclusion we came to last month when we published our big performance tracker report in partnership with SIPFA. 
looking a bit more at some of the settlements. So the most generous was for social care. It's a genuinely big increase uh, and should be enough to meet inflationary pressures and growing demographic demands. The NHS settlement is enough to account for higher pay settlements that have already been offered in the kind of range of 5%, but not much more. Uh, And it's now as generous uh, as was originally set out uh, in the autumn of 2021, which is about 4.5% a year increases. But given the dire performance this year, which is coming despite a spending uplift, it will definitely not be enough to fix the elective care backlogs unless the service gets substantially more efficient. Similarly, education spending is enough to meet ongoing demand, but probably not enough to deal with the lost learning uh, from the pandemic. Uh, And in criminal justice, uh, the situation is unfortunately less rosy, with demand likely to outstrip spending by a sizable margin. Uh, Prisons and courts are in a particularly uh, bad state with the pre-pandemic problems badly exacerbated by COVID. uh, And the spending decisions announced yesterday mean there's little prospect of making meaningful reductions to the Crown Court backlog or of safely housing the expected increase in prisoner numbers. Probably the the most positive picture is police spending, which although it's due to fall in real terms over the spending review period, that follows a very large increase up to 2021-2022 to deliver the Boris Johnson promise of 20,000 additional police officers. And overall, police is probably the only service that has enough funding to maintain or improve on pre-pandemic performance. Uh, As I said, the problem for all services is there isn't enough money for inflationary pay rises, and it seems doubtful that the government will be able to offer enough to avert widespread strikes. And that's before we get to 2025-26, and from then onwards, it's actually much harder. So if the spending settlements that were announced today were announced in a spending review in 2025, it would be less generous than every spending review announcement since 2002, except for 2010 and 2015. And critically, 2015 proved undeliverable, with the government finding it necessary to provide emergency funding to social care, the NHS and criminal justice in response to poor performance. So in conclusion, it's better than expected for the next two years, but probably not enough. And the situation will be much harder after the next election. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, Ben, can I turn to you? We've heard how we got here. We've heard something of, of, of Gemma's analysis of, of, of the sort of challenges faced and, and, and Nick's of what this does for public services. How has this gone down? How has this gone down with the markets? Because obviously that was part of the job, right, oh, yes. for, for, for Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> yeah. um, and how different um, was, was what the reaction uh, to, to yesterday to the reaction to the mini-budget? And why do yeah. you think that was? Well, very different. I mean... Um, so the, the market reaction to the mini-budget, um, I think there's a bit of a mystery about that. Now, that might sound a bit strange because, obviously, the markets hated it. So where was the mystery? Well, the mystery is why exactly they hated it. Um, you know, w- was it because of people like the OBR being not used in, in, in producing the budget forecasts? Uh, was it the sacking of the Treasury Permanent Secretary, Tom Scholar? Was it because of that unfunded tax cut uh, that was announced and the absence of any nod to any fiscal rules, apparently, at least in the statement? Was it um, the pre-lack uh, of coordination, even the undermining of the independence, at least rhetorically, of the Bank of England? So what, what, was, what were markets reacting so badly to? Now, I spoke to a lot of people in markets after the mini-budget, 
saying, well, you know, what is it? Why, why has there been this huge sell-off in guilt? What, what's driving it? And you get a lot of different answers. There wasn't a, one particular thing they pointed to. They cited a lot of those things, but they didn't settle on a specific one. Um, and they certainly had different emphasis on what was going on uh, and what was driving it. So the market reaction, obviously, this time was very calm, uh, pretty much. Not much movement in uh, guilt yields at all, really. So what does that tell us? Well, I think we can draw a conclusion. I think that um, well, obviously, having the OBR's projections alongside it and you, some fiscal rules from the government, albeit relaxed, I think that definitely helped. But I think given the fact, as you said, Gemma, that most of the consolidation, the fiscal consolidation, is coming after the next election and there will be a lot more borrowing, certainly relative to March and certainly relative to what there could have been um, if some of the noises from the Chancellor about the, need to, the speed of the need to fi- fix this fiscal hole uh, had materialised, perhaps that tells us that the, market, the bad market reaction after the mini-budget uh, wasn't driven so much by fears of huge near-term borrowing as much as the absence of a plan uh, and all the other stuff. So I think, that's, I think that's a tentative conclusion we can draw from the, the, the market reaction that we had uh, yesterday. Um, and I think we can also perhaps draw from that, you know, the market was not clamouring for fiscal consolidation in the near-term, which is a conclusion some people drew, but I think we can probably move away from that as a conclusion. And certainly weren't clamouring for a fiscal uh, consolidation as we enter recession uh, as well. And I think that, that brings us, to, if I can just diverge slightly, to the, to the macro stance. This is a very interesting debate about whether, effectively, it would have been better for the government, for Jeremy Hunt, to bring forward the fiscal consolidation or to backdate it, which was the right. And it's, a lot of the debates have been a bit like 2010, 2015 uh, redux, you know, was austerity bad? Is it too, too fast, too soon, etc.? Now, we didn't get that in the end because obviously it was heavily backdated. So I don't, you know, there's, a, there's actually a, a giveaway, a slight giveaway this year. It doesn't tighten and it tightens only very slightly next year. So really it is, there's not much uh, fiscal consolidation in the near term, certainly not enough that's really likely to massively undermine the, the economy, uh, although it would be undermined for all the other reasons pointed out by Richard uh, and Gemma. Um, so on this debate about whether it should have been front-loaded or not, um, I, my sense is that most economists would probably say Jeremy Hunt got it about right. I mean, there is a view that they should have done more sooner, but uh, that's a very interesting debate. But I think, to be honest, thinking about it, um, I think it's a case of pick your poison. Because if you think that the Bank of England is going to do what's necessary to keep um, inflation in check, then if they'd front-loaded the consolidation, enabled the Bank of England perhaps not to raise interest rates as fast and as high as they might otherwise have done, uh, you know, that you would have the hit of taxes or spending cuts to achieve that. So you've had pain that way. Now it looks like the Bank of England will probably have to put up rates a bit more faster than it might have done if they'd front-loaded the consolidation. So you either get the pain in higher interest rates or you get it in higher taxes and lower spending. So I think it's arguably, it's a, it's a wash either way. Very interesting. So, Richard, Ben mentions there the way in which the, the, the markets were, or not, were not factoring in a whole set of different issues, including the way in which the government was uh, relating to the OBR and making use or not of the OBR. How, what's your sort of assessment now of the way the last few months have um, affected the relationship between the government and the OBR? Uh, I, I, our relationship with the, with the Treasury has always been very strong, and we had very good cooperation in the run-up to this autumn statement. So I, I think in that sense... The institutional arrangements that we have in place, the legal frameworks we have in place, the processes we have in place, 
um, I think have remained kind of robust and resilient um, throughout, and I, and I think served you know served us well, and I and I hope served the Treasury well um, in the context of putting uh, putting the autumn statement together. And I, and I think I should say, I mean, just on on Ben's point about what what you can try and intimate about the market uh, reaction to to this event, um, and all, and more generally the market reaction to the the course of events over the last over the last uh, six months. Um, one thing you you have you have to disentangle is the fact that the you know the UK government's borrowing costs have gone up a lot in the last six months. You know our our, our bond our you know our bond yields have gone from uh, at the twenty year point around you know around one percent to, to to above three percent over that period. That's a huge rise in borrowing costs. It's a tripling of the borrowing costs of government over over a short space of time. Um, but the thing is that's also happened all around the world. That's happened to U.S. Treasuries. It's happened to German government bonds. It's happened all over the it's all happened all over the euro area. Every government who's basically had benefited from a, a financial free lunch for a very long time post financial crisis and an, an even cheaper lunch uh, during the pandemic, we had negative yields for a while in the UK during the pandemic. People were, you know, people were people were paying us to take their money, um, or paying the government to take their money. Um, that era, that era ended. Um, it ended and it ended quite dramatically over the same period where we had um, where you had the mini budget. There was a period after the mini budget where. Not only did the rise in our our borrowing costs uh, as a country um, rise in line with global developments, but actually they rose even more. There was a kind of premium above the usual spread between U.S. Uh, U.K. sovereign debt and U.S. Treasuries and German bonds. Um, but that premium has now more or less disappeared. Um, and by the time we closed our forecast, Jeremy Hunt presented his autumn statement. Um, you know that that you know that additional premium that the UK was paying above and beyond the traditional spread between our debt and that of the US and that of the Germans, um, you know, you know, had disappeared. And, and you know, that, that that you know that gives it that you know that suggests that um, you know, people are now looking at the way in which we make fiscal policy and thinking it's essentially gone back to normal. And uh, just thinking about that, do you, do you think normal is optimal? Like, are, is there any aspect of the institutional relationship between the ABR and the Treasury that you um, have reflected on and thought, well, actually, there could be some ways to enhance this based on your experience? So I, I think we have a very strong institutional relationship. And I think especially given um, we have uh, every country, almost every country in Europe nowadays has some kind of independent fiscal institution. Uh, they call them fiscal councils or they call them fiscal advisory bodies. They serve slightly different functions in slightly different countries. Some of them actually do the official forecast like we do. Others just kind of comment, comment on fiscal policy, which we're, we're prohibited from doing. Um, uh, and, and you have to kind of find out, find out ways of working. The job that I used to do used to be done in, in, inside the Treasury, um, and some people implying that you know, ch- chancellors would lean on forecasters to get the forecast they wanted. Part of the reason for setting us up was to make sure that people had confidence that our forecast was, was median and central. But once you separate the forecast from the policymaking process, you've got to work out ways of interacting, because... Obviously, the forecast has to inform policy decisions, and obviously, those policy decisions have to inform our forecast. I think you know, after tw- over twelve years, and I have to give all credit to my predecessor. Um, uh, you know, that that's, that system I think works remarkably well, but it also it just demands respect on both sides. You know, uh, we have to bite our tongue when people ask us, "Well, what would you have done if you were chancellor?" <laughs> and they have to bite their tongue when someone says, "Well, what do you think of the OBR's forecast? It seems far too pessimistic." And they go, mm, "You know, we." We, you know, it's the one we're basing our plans on, and and I think, and you know, I, and I, I think you've seen that over the course of the past few days. I, I haven't heard any government minister criticise our uh, criticise our forecast, um, but you know, if, if they did, we you know, happily listen. But in the end, they use it to make their policy decisions, and you know, we are at pains to not comment 
um, on the policies that the, 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 the Treasury sets out because that's not our role. Your, your um, forecast of growth is much more optimistic than the Bank of England's, isn't it? Um, which would be uh, welcome, no doubt, to the, to the government. Uh, why do you think that is? Uh, it is more optimistic than the banks. I, I should stress that our forecast is basically in line with that of other independent forecasters. So when you compare it to kind of other macroeconomic institutions, um, to uh, you know, uh, banks in the city, uh, you know, we're basically in line with the, with the average of other forecasters. The, the bank is quite a bit below um, ourselves, but also below the consensus. And there are, there are some reasons for that. The bank went a bit earlier in the cycle of yields coming down and gas prices coming down. So they've got, they had to rely on a slightly more pessimistic snapshot um, of sort of some key determinants and gas prices and interest rates are the big ones these days. Um, a second reason is that uh, we, assume, we, we, we took a different judgment on an important question, which is what happens in a cost of, in a cost of living shock to what people do with the savings they built up during the pandemic. Um, we, we saw historic savings rates during the pandemic. People built up, a, you know, some, some households, not all, in fact, not most, but some households built up a, a big stock of savings during the pandemic. And, and as a, a big exam question for macroeconomists is, um, are people going to dip into those savings now that we're facing, you know, what looks like a 7% fall in living standards over the next two years? We took the judgment that this is a, this is a historic fall in living standards people are going to dip into those savings, savings rates are going to go down, um, and people are going to save less and spend more to get them through a period where their real wages are being eroded. The bank took the view that actually, faced with these kind of shocks, people hang on to their savings because they're worried about the future. Um, you know, it shows that experts can disagree on these kind of, these kind of issues. Um, you get different forecasts coming out of it. And then finally, um, the bank has a slightly more pessimistic view of the long-term sort of, sort of steady-state growth rate of the economy from us. Uh, they're at about one and a half we're at about one and three quarters. That sounds like a small amount, but it makes a big difference over, over a five-year period. Very interesting. Um, Gemma, so just following on from that, obviously where, you're, where you put your central forecast plays into this question, which was much debated in the run-up to the autumn statement about the size of the fiscal black hole, uh, which may or may not exist. Um, do, you th- do you feel that the sort of the, the focus on, on OBR forecast in, in that run-up became a bit un, unhealthy, in a sense. So I don't think it's... There was a lot of talk in recent weeks about the size of the hole, what was going to be needed to fill it. But I don't, I don't think it's just this forecast. We've kind of seen this over many years. Of kind of, I think it's a, really, it's a really tricky one because on the plus side, it's great that we have transparency about what the fiscal outlook is like. It's good that we have fiscal rules that constrain government's behaviour and that they feel obliged to set out plans that are consistent with fiscal sustainability. And it's great that the media analyse these things, explain them to the public, hold them to account. But in practice, it's led, including this time, to possibly some slightly perverse behaviours, which is a kind of obsession with the central forecast and therefore the precise pounds-billion gap between where you want to be and where the no-measures forecast gets you to. Um, And then in response to that, I think this time, but also in previous iterations, you get government chancellors very carefully manipulating policy to make sure that the pounds-billion precisely match what they wanted to get to. And that can mean that you end up with numbers that at the big picture public finances level, it doesn't, one billion pounds here or there, doesn't make a huge difference. But when you 
take that down to the implications for individual bits of policy. It can mean raising individual tax rates to levels where you might worry about the distortionary effects, or particularly on public services. What we've seen in successive years is taking, holding down budgets, taking money out, where at an individual service level, a billion pounds here or there can make a huge difference to what's possible. And so I think there's a slightly unhealthy obsession, which is a kind of combination of the forecasting approach, setting fiscal rules, the, the difficulty of the media conveying uncertainty around that central forecast that ends up with an obsession about individual pounds billion, and that translates into government policy that is far from optimal. Is it something you, you um, reflect on, Richard, this sort of question about how you communicate the, the degree of uncertainty there actually is around everything that you're doing? I think it's a perennial struggle for forecasters, and uh, I, I sympathise with... Uh, our, our colleagues in epidemiology during the pandemic who were trying to understand this new virus, forecast what was going to happen to caseloads, forecast the implications for the health service, came under lots of criticism when their forecast turned out to be wrong. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I, I think they did an amazing job during, during the pandemic and have a lot of respect for them. Um, but we face the same challenges in, in economics. We're facing these kind of new idiosyncratic shocks all the time. The pandemic itself... You know, this new energy crisis in the context of a very different energy mix, um, which is dependent on a war going on on the continent of Europe. Um, when is that going to resolve itself? When are energy prices going to come down? When is the economy going to recover? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty long chain of logic before you can get to a number for GDP in five years' time. And it's just really hard to convey to people how much uncertainty there is around forecasts because they just want a number. I mean, Ben just wants a number, right? He's got to go on the news and he's got to say, <laughs> he's got to say you, know, how, you, know, you know, how big is the gap between where the Chancellor wants to get to with fiscal policy and, and where he is now. So, um, and, and, and also people who plan fiscal policy across the park in the Treasury, they want something to aim at. Um, but what you have to convey is there's a huge amount of uncertainty around this number. It can change if interest rates change. It can change if gas prices change. You know, we're, a, we're an open economy who imports a lot of gas and borrows a lot of money from the outside world. If the prices of those things change, our economic outlook changes overnight. And you have to accept that. Um, you, and, uh, because that, that's the economic setup we've had. If we were, if we were a completely closed economy and, you know, if we were self-sufficient in everything, we'd be fine. But that's not what we are. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, um, I suppose the answer is effectively the one that uh, Jeremy Hunt came up with. It's just to backdate it. So it gives you time to see if the public finances improve that. So you don't do anything too soon in, uh, that could harm growth or cut public services in the near term and you sort of take a wait and see approach. I mean, I think, you know, the fiscal rules and the creation of these black holes is probably the worst system you could have apart from everything else, right? You know, you, it does help anchor things for all the reasons Gemma says. I mean, I would agree, though, that I think you, do, you are seeing a bit of that uh, kind of the rules driving suboptimal, arguably, outcomes in sort of the capital spending element of it. They sort of, they've clearly cut capital spending in the final years of the forecasts to make sure that they are hitting quite an arbitrary rule five years out when actually capital spending, as we all, sure we all know, is a, something that really you, benefits from having long-term certainty that it's going to come through and it builds the long-term capacity of the economy. So that, doesn't see, that seems like an, a perverse outcome and, but one where it is driving it. But as I say, I think... You know, they're far from perfect. We in the media have a responsibility to communicate where these rules, what these rules imply and where, how these black holes are created. And it is difficult because, as Richard says, people want a number, people want clarity, um, and newspapers and media organisations need headlines. But, yeah, we need to get beyond that and explain where they come from. I think that's the best way to, to deal with it, I think. 
Nick, I want to come to you in a second and just ask you about that capital point that, that Ben's raised. But, I mean, just to ask you, for, you know, you said maybe this is a sort of logical approach for the Chancellor to have taken in terms of, you know, um, pushing some of this stuff off into the future. Do you think politically, once we get there, this stuff that's promised is going to happen? I mean, the first thing is 12p on uh, mm. fuel duty in mm. April. I mean, well, how plausible well, is that? I think that? that's very unlikely to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and obviously we have a general election between now and the bulk of those cuts coming through. So it's, it's in, you know, you, it's in, a lot of people expressed a lot of scepticism about whether they will materialise, and I would probably share that. Yeah. Nick, so, I mean, we've done um, a lot of thinking about um, the role of uh, investment capital in public services specifically. Uh, we heard yesterday from Jeremy Hunt that we want Scandinavian quality alongside Singaporean efficiency in public services. How does uh, uh, the idea of... Uh, capital cuts uh, in the in the uh, medium term play into that I mean, Scandinavian quality and Singaporean efficiency sounds great. Uh, and, you know, it's worth noting that for the next two years, capital budgets for public services have largely been protected. And I guess just to pick up on what others say, I think there was a pretty good case for delaying uh, major spending uh, reductions. You know, services are still recovering uh, from the pandemic. Immediate cuts would have had a, almost certainly had a detrimental impact uh, on performance. And actually, if you are really interested in finding sustainable efficiencies, that's going to require time, capacity, and yes, upfront capital investment. Uh, so that they, that, that, that they have retained capital budgets for the next two years, that they've brought in uh, Patricia Hewitt, who was obviously uh, a former health secretary, but since then has remained directly involved um, in the NHS, suggests that kind of they are at least serious at, at trying to find those savings. I think the problem is that Although the budgets for capital are generous for the next two years, historically we have massively underinvested versus the private sector and versus other countries. So I think uh, since 2000, there's only been one year in which we have invested more in health capital than the OECD average. Uh, and for the rest of that time, we've been a massive outlier. And the, that just means that you have less modern buildings uh, with leaking roofs, you have uh, people operating on outdated uh, IT, uh, and we just have fewer things like scanners, etc., which means inevitably that kind of your highly trained and hard to recruit people like doctors and nurses are going to be less productive because they are working on less modern equipment in less modern settings. So great for the next two years, but it's not going to catch up all the underinvestment over the last two decades. And Nick, just a slightly different um, point. We at the Institute think a lot about um, how ministers do their jobs, how they can do their jobs uh, most effectively. And one of the things, of course, that shapes how a minister does their job is the experience that they have had in the past, experience possibly outside politics, but also as, as a minister. How do you think the fact that Jeremy Hunt uh, spent a, a, a good chunk of time as, as Secretary of State for Health has seemed to have shaped his thinking in approaching this um, uh, fiscal statement. I think, as, I, as I said at the beginning, I think it was probably more than you most people in the sector, in the health sector, could have realistically hoped for. And there was a 
a funny bit or a funny bit as uh, as funny as um, autumn statements tend to get, uh, where um, Jeremy Hunt was talking about the excellent ideas put forward by the um, previous chair of the Health Select Committee, who, of course, was also Jeremy Hunt. Uh, so I think the fact that not only was he had he been health secretary and then and therefore understood the kind of the amount of money that was required, but also until very recently he had been in a kind of scrutinising role and had put forward uh, some pretty sensible proposals in terms of kind of investment, in terms of workforce planning. It, it probably kind of was a rod for his back in a good way in that it meant that when he did get back um, into government, uh, he was able to, uh, to implement those ideas. So I, as I said, it's probably not enough, but it's, pro- it, it's, it's better than most people would have hoped for. Thanks, Dick. Um, I'm just going to put one more question to you, Ben, and then I'm going to open up to questions on the floor. So do have your questions ready. Um, I just wondered what you made of Rachel Reed's response um, to the statement yesterday. Do you feel that Labour is now in quite a difficult position if they want to think about uh, their spending plans after the next election? Yeah, I think, I think Labour has a challenge, certainly. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Labour's critique of Boris Johnson's government was that there's no growth. And, and uh, uh, that's the problem. That's why we have all these tough choices. And then Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng came along and said, we're going to go out for growth. So that was <laughs> totally <laughs> difficult for Labour to pivot in response to that. And now they've pivoted back again. I mean, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, about a trap laid for Labour uh, in the sense that we're coming up into an election that's going to, the government is going to be committed to tight uh, uh, type spending plans. Are Labour going to match that with the argument, I suppose, that if Labour didn't, then they would be able to be painted as fiscally irresponsible? Uh, I mean, I'm not a political analyst, but I, I'm not sure that that quite coheres, given the demand from the public for better public services. Um, but we'll see. We'll find out. We will. OK, I'm going to take some questions for the room now. We'll take them in tranches of, of two or three. We have a roving mic, which my colleague will bring to you... Um, Please wait for the mic. Say who you are um, and what organisation you are from. I'm going to go to my colleague there. Hi. Uh, thanks for a great discussion. Uh, I'm Ollie, an economist here at the IFG. Um, my question is about the forecast for the fall in living standards. I've been staring at your chart, Richard, <clears throat> for most of today and yesterday because it's ho- horrifying. Um, I have a specific question for you on what is driving that, because you're also predicting quite a shallow recession, but there's the largest fall in living standards that we've seen since the 50s, so I wondered what's going on in the forecast for that. Um, And then, I guess, for the rest of the panel, if this turns out to be accurate, and we do have the worst fall in living standards for the past 70 years, what do you think, uh, sort of, debate about economic policy is going to be dominated by for the rest of the parliament. Thanks. Okay, and I think there was a question here. Um, I I might try and step in too. Uh, Nick, you mentioned that Jeremy Hunt showed his um, heritage as a health secretary, but he famously changed the name of the department to be health and social care, and yet uh, postponed Dillnot for another couple of years. Uh, some people are interpreting that as mean dill not never happens. Do you think they're getting to a stage where they actually realise dill not's focusing perhaps slightly on the wrong issue about how you pay for care rather than the amount you need to pay for social care? I wonder what this all meant for social care there. And my other question, just quickly to Richard, on the net migration assumption. In the fussing around Suella Bravman's 
first resignation, um, there were sort of, you know, things that the government had to come out with a statement that on what its tolerance of migration was. And yet, in this forecast, you seem to have put in a much higher number for migration than you did in March without an accompanying government statement of policy towards migration. Does that mean you're confident that the Sunak administration isn't targeting returning migration to under to tens of thousands like David Cameron, as we'd heard before? I think we'll just take those two questions to start with because there's plenty there. Do you want to kick off, Richard? Uh, sure. I, 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 just to address those two. So in terms of uh, it, it is a historic fall in living standards. We've never seen we, we very rarely have two years running of falling living standards, which um, we have in our forecast. And a 7 percent fall is just un, un, unprecedented um, since they started collecting records on these things in the 1950s. So it is a, it is a, um, a, a once, once in almost a century fall in, in living standards. In terms of what drives it and why is the fall in GDP less, what's driving it is really just the difference between the increase in consumer prices and the increase in people's wages. I mean, there are obviously not everybody's, not, not everybody's earning. Um, some people are, are getting in debt. Uh, uh, some, people's, some people's incomes are, if they're a pensioner, getting indexed to, to CPI. But um, you know, for, for, people, for people in the working population, their earnings, are, their, their wages are growing a lot more slowly than prices are going up. And that just means your real wages are being eroded and that reduces your disposable income. Um, uh, why, is it that, uh, why is it that GDP falls by less? Well, part of the explanation is the savings, savings point that people are compensating for the fact that their, their earnings are falling by dipping into their savings and using that to support their consumption. So there's a kind of consumption of stock thing going on. Um, so, you know, save, saving less... Um, out out of their incomes and consuming more that supports consumption in a period when uh, when, it, when it otherwise otherwise wouldn't. Uh, and uh, another part of the answer is that uh, a lot a lot of what is driving the, uh, the 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 fall in living standards is a is a rise in energy prices, is a rise in gas prices. But a rise in gas prices in particular, and a rise in, and also a rise in food prices, um, is driving up inflation and driving down living standards is more of a problem for households than it is for employers. Um, you know, for employers, their biggest their biggest cost is usually payroll, and payroll is not going up by as much as energy costs are going up, and as much as uh, as much as food is going up. Um, households don't employ people; they they heat their house, they keep the lights on, um, and they feed themselves. And and th- but those kind of things are getting the prices of those are going up by a lot more. Um, so that's why uh, living standards are falling more quickly and taking longer to recover um, than production, um, because production doesn't rely as much on those things to, to make it happen. Um, on, on net migration, I, I, this was a precedent start, you know, initiated by my predecessor, which turned out to be a very sensible one, which was that um, we just look at the data on migration um, and we don't necessarily believe the government's ambitions for migration numbers. Uh, I mean, you'll remember uh, OBR was set up in 2010, Robert Choate ran it for a decade. Throughout that period, the Cameron government was saying they were going to get net migration down to the tens of thousands. They never did. And we have to produce a forecast for the workforce. And you know, a, you know, a small but you know, significant share of the workforce workforce growth every year comes from net migration. Um, uh, we had we had assumed um, that when we moved from uh, the pre-Brexit to the post-Brexit migration regime, there would be a fall in net migration into this country um, to something uh, down to uh, you know, a, a bit higher than one hundred thousand, one hundred twenty-nine thousand a year. Um, and we just assumed that that was going to be how the new system was going to operate, it was going to let in fewer people because you needed a visa to come here and work. Um, as it's turned out, you know, what we looked at the data, you know, the year to, um, the year to June, uh, net migration was well over 200,000. 
So what we've done is moved our assumption about net migration in the long term to something closer to around you know, just above 200,000 to reflect the fact that it looks as though the way the regime has been operated in practice is that it's bringing in roughly that number of people to satisfy the employment needs of the economy. Thank you. Nick, would you like to pick up on the uh, Dilnock question from Jill? Yes. Uh, um, so it's it's obviously not the, the first time uh, these proposals have, have been delayed. Uh, you know, George Osborne as Chancellor delayed their implementation even after they'd um, made it onto the statute book. I think one of the problems is that because we have a very severe means test uh, at the moment, any change to it is necessarily regressive. And most of the benefits of extra spending go to wealthier households. Though that's obviously not an argument we tend to make about the NHS, which also provides kind of universal access, no matter what your uh, income or household wealth is. I think the other issue is that while it does help solve a really important problem, which is the kind of catastrophic costs that are must be shouldered uh, by some families, it doesn't do much for some of the other big problems facing social care, like the kind of lack of sustainability uh, in the market, uh, in the workforce, uh, and the quality of uh, provision. Uh, so it, it can be, there's a question of whether it's the best way of spending all that uh, additional uh, money. And yeah, it's a good question about whether it will ever come back. I guess just to pick up quickly on Ollie's point uh, as well, you know, all else being equal in general, it helps public sector recruitment and retention. Uh, if the rest of the economy is in a bad way, if unemployment uh, is higher, etc., but it's a question of, of how helpful that is going to be because obviously the public sector workforce is more heavily unionised. Uh, and even if there were problems uh, in the private sector, those more heavily unionised public sector workforces are unlikely to kind of happily accept substantially below inflation uh, pay rises, which is likely to be what they're going to be offered given the money that the most public services have going forward. Thanks, Nick. Gemma... Ben, did you want to pick up on Ollie's question, or should we take some more? No, I mean, I'll just say, just on very quickly on what's going to dominate debate. I mean, I think it's probably what continuation of what we've got at the moment. You know, it's about things like energy bills, state of the public services, possibly strikes, uh, given the tight um, for, uh, spending envelope for many public services as well, perhaps labour shortages as well. But, I mean, I think it will be, we've set the parameters of uh, where the discontent is coming from. Thank you. No. Okay, um, I've got a question here, and I think there's a gentleman at the back. I think what most people want to know, most, I'm so sorry? Could you tell us who you are and where you're from? I'm called Peter York, and I'm president of the, the Media Society. Um, what most people want to know is who to blame, so they can be very, very angry with them. Uh, micro-addressing these things doesn't given you that perspective. Now, in that light, who to blame, two figures really stand out. The first is, of course, the one which national newspapers, the majority of them, don't like to feature. The BBC doesn't like to feature. The Labour Party doesn't like to feature, which is the 4% hit. The other one which, again, most people don't like to feature, is the 30 billion hit. The Observer put it on its front page last Sunday. How true is that? Can you comment on the 
nature of the 30 billion hit? Is that a substantive, unchangeable hit? Does it factor in things like the British brand, or is it absolutely substantive and unchangeable? What are those two figures all about? Because we fester about them. Thank you. There's a gentleman at the back. Um, thank you very much. My name's uh, Aaron Arrell. I work at HMRC. I've done stints at the Treasury and IMF as well. So, um, My question's about inflation. Um, how much inflation was already baked in before the 24th of February invasion of Ukraine? Because it appears to be quite a bit, actually, if you look at uh, some of the charts. And sort of linked to that, how much is therefore endemic? So if, we, if we've been, had a long period of low growth but stable and notwithstanding shocks, are we going to be seeing a sort of new normal in terms of inflation? And perhaps you, you mentioned, Richard, the, the Bank of England being somewhat less optimistic. I just wondered if there were people who were more optimistic, perhaps, about, about that question. Thank you. And I'm going to just add in one question, um, which I, has come in through Slido. Do keep sending your questions in if you're watching online. Uh, we have an anonymous question. How important is energy security and independence to stabilising the economy? And will announcements such as Sizewell C be enough to meet the UK's future energy demands? Gemma, so you didn't get a go last time. Um, do you want to, to, to pick up on these, how much of inflation is, is baked in? What are the factors which aren't being fully discussed here? And what is the significance of energy uh, security? Um, so on the inflation question, I'm sure Richard will have a better answer to this, having done well, a macro right. forecast, which we <laughs> do not do. Um, I mean, the thing that occurs to me is some of what was already in the expectations before February also relate to some of the supply constraints as a hangover from the pandemic. I think some of those, there's evidence, I think those are starting to ease. So perhaps some, some of that was temporary for different reasons that isn't the invasion, but I'm sure Rich can give you a better answer to that. No. Um, <laughs> um, on the who to blame, what's not being talked about. Uh, so I think, am I right in thinking the two you're referring to are the, the 4% Brexit hit to the UK's economic yes. outlook, which well, 4% being the number the OBR had in, I think, still That's right, in. Yeah. Um, and £30 billion pounds being the billion interest rate pounds. increase? Uh, the Observer alleged on its front page this last Saturday was the cost of the micro-budget. Okay. Uh, right. I don't uh, 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 want to hear about why people aren't talking about it. I want to hear what you think about those figures. So on those... Two. So yes. they're... How <laughs> reliable are they? Uh, so the OBR's 4% hit from Brexit, very difficult to estimate what would the growth path of the UK economy had been had we voted remain instead of leave. However, I'm fairly convinced by the sort of analysis that the OBR has tried to do over recent years of trying to look at a big part of that was what happens to the closeness of trade links between the UK and the rest of the world post-Brexit. And the evidence there seems to be that the sort of reduction in trade integration that would, was consistent with that assumption they made seems to be playing out roughly as you would expect. So it seems right ballpark assumption. 
Um, on the £30 billion hit, I think Richard sort of alluded to this, or mentioned quite explicitly earlier, um, the question was what permanent damage did the mini-budget do to the UK's credibility and therefore the sort of permanent legacy of higher interest rates as a result of that. Most of that divergence between UK borrowing costs and the rest of the world seems to have disappeared. That It did open up a gap after the 23rd of September and that seems to have closed again now. So it seems most of the increase in borrowing costs, which has been significant, is largely about other macro factors going on global impacts rather than being specifically about a loss of credibility in this government. Um, Can I just... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, really let's let, let's give Ben a chance to come in. And being Where does it's a debatable point, Rich, uh, Peter. We actually did an explainer on BBC Newsnight. I'll send you the link uh, to the little segment <laughs> we did. But I, I think it, the, part of the confusion about this issue, because it is debated about what is the legacy of the, uh, the mini-budget for the, the hit to the public finances, it did, I think Richard would, would back me up, it's, it opened up uh, at least about £18 billion in the sense that the mini-budget cut national insurance, uh, reverse national insurance. So that, that opens up about £18 billion. And then there's a debate about between that 18 and the 30, to what extent that was a, a lasting legacy of the fact that interest rates, the path of interest rates was set to go up higher and UK government borrowing costs were due to be higher. There was one stage where it looked like it was opening up a big hole, but a lot of people think actually it's, it, it, it went away. One thing I would say about the legacy of the mini-budget is mortgage rates. As soon as you had what they call swap rates in the market. So the, price, the, the money market's pricing for what mortgages will be. Those went up very dramatically, very quickly after the mini-budget. And anyone who was remortgaging immediately after that period were hit by those rates. Now, the hope is that those rates will come down, but they haven't come down yet, actually. So if you're a householder remortgaging, you are getting a big hit. As a direct result, uh, I think you could argue, from the mini-budget, hopefully it will go away for future people or at least go away partly for future remortgages. But that was a very direct impact on a lot of people's lives, and that's still being felt. And Ben, any thoughts on the uh, question, the online question about energy security? And, and how oh, yes. Well, I've got a BBC documentary <laughs> oh, well. coming out on energy. <laughs> I didn't what, know that. The new age of autarky, where we get into this question about should we be actually striving for energy independence in the UK, as you know, all, pretty much all the mainstream parties are saying should be a goal. And is it feasible? Uh, what would be the consequences of that? I think it's interesting, you know, the general economic answer to anything that people, when people raise autarky, is that it's a very bad idea, trade makes is better off as related to the Brexit question but they're actually speak to energy experts and they think broadly in an energy independence for a country like the UK which has a lot of renewable you know, wind and, and a lot of solar can make up a lot of it. they think it is a reasonable thing to aim for perhaps not total energy independence total autarky but energy is one of those areas where it does make sense to go in that direction and especially so since the uh, unreliability of uh, imported gas and other fossil fuels. So that is interestingly one where it does seem to make sense. And nuclear is part of that, I think. Interesting. Richard, anything to add on this? Uh, no, nothing on that. Okay. Um, I've got a different question then, specifically for you that's coming online. So the OBR forecast projected deflation from 2024. Does that mean you think market expectations for interest rates are too high? Um, and if so, is a fiscal forecast improvement more likely than not over the next year? Um, so, so uh, I mean, won't comment on market interest rate expectations and, and where they should be. Um, one of the main reasons why we forecast 
and, and I should say we, we, we don't forecast either steep or persistent deflation. I mean, this is not a, we, we are not looking at a sort of Japan scenario. Um, it goes mildly negative for for a short period in the middle of the decade, and then it comes back to close to the bank's two percent target. So we assume that monetary policy does its job to get inflation back to target. The reason that there is a period of sort of mild negative inflation in the meantime is is twofold. Um, one is that uh, the prices of the commodities that have been driving inflation up this year um, start to fall and get and you know, start to fall very dramatically over the course of the next uh, of the of the eighteen months after that, and so. As gas prices come down, if you believe what the futures curve say, as food prices come down, um, that then drives inflation into negative territory. Um, our forecast brings it, you know, sort of brings it, it into negative territory. Unlike some forecasts, which just bring it back to sort of low positive single digits, is that we've tried to anticipate. And this is a bit nerdy, excuse me, but they did ask the question. Yeah, we like nerdy. We've tried to anticipate the reweighting of the CPI basket over time, and <laughs> um, which is which is because. The more expensive energy is, the more you have to spend of your household income on energy. That means the way we measure inflation has to be adjusted for how much of your household budget is going on energy versus other things, because otherwise it doesn't represent what you spend your money on. Um, Once you do that, and the price of that stuff in your basket starts to fall, that brings the price index down even faster um, uh, than it it did on the way up. And that's why you get a a period of of, uh, uh, negative inflation as the prices of energy and food are coming down, and they represent a very a, a, a higher weight in the consumption basket than they have in the past. And that explains a bit of why other people just keep a constant basket over that period. If you wait more towards energy and food, and energy and food prices are falling, you get more energy inflation. Very interesting. End of lecture. Nerdy is interesting. I'm going to take one final question here, and then one from online, and then we'll, afraid, have to wrap it up. Hi there, here is Sivelin Stanko from Atkins. Thank you very much for us on the panel. My question is also around uh, financial markets in the UK. So I was curious about your opinion. Do you believe that the new fiscal plan is enough to bring investors' confidence back in UK markets? Because recently there has been a discussion that UK started, the UK economy started acting more as an emerging economy rather than a stable one. But do you think this small success in, yesterday, in yesterday's financial markets in a sense that there wasn't a turmoil in guilt to sterling was enough, or maybe this was one of the first steps in the right direction? Thank you. Thank you. And I've got one question that's come in online, another anonymous question. There's a lot of anonymous people uh, asking questions today. This is for you, going to be for you, Nick. Um, uh, commentators have claimed that the statement postpones austerity 2.0, but the real terms major cut to local government budgets is surely going to mean that additional austerity impacts will bite in communities from next year regardless. Who would like to take the gentleman's question here in the audience? On, on market sentiment? Yes. Um, so I, I think the short answer is just looking at the market data, there was basically no real market response to yesterday's autumn statement, and that suggests that it was what they're expecting. Um, uh, uh, but I think there's a, there's a. But you asked a question about kind of you know, what does our fiscal performance look like more generally? Are we more sensitive, vulnerable, etc.? Um, there is there's another aspect of that question which I think is really important, which has been a structural change in the UK, which makes us more vulnerable to changes in market sentiment the way in which an emerging market would be, which is that one thing that advanced countries usually have is a very long maturity of debt. So they borrow 20, 30, 50 years ahead. And that means at any point in time, they're not rolling over a huge share of their debt stock every year and having to go back out to markets and get it repriced. Um, you know, if you borrow 30 years ahead, you don't have to re- redeem and replace that bond for 30 years. 
emerging markets don't have that kind of luxury. They borrow short because people don't quite know what their country's going to look like in 30 years. What's happened to the maturity of the UK's government debt stock over time is our, our, the maturity of our debt stock has gradually shortened. It used to have an average maturity of about seven years. It's now down to about two. Um, and that is not because the government's not issuing... It's the government's not issuing lots and lots of long-term debt at the 20, 30, 50-year mark, but much of it is now getting bought up by the Bank of England through quantitative easing, and, and it gets replaced with the Bank of England's short-term debt with an overnight interest rate. The net effect of that is to shorten the average maturity from, on average, seven years to, on average, two years. And what that means, in practical terms, wants to take account of the fact that also the government's got a much higher debt stock than it used to, is in the old days, when you had a one percentage point increase in interest rates, that would add about £2 billion to the government's borrowing cost the following year. Nowadays, with a higher debt stock and a shorter maturity, a one percentage point increase in interest rates adds £13 billion to the government's interest cost the following year. And that's one of the reasons why this particular autumn statement felt so painful to, to Jeremy Hunt, which is that you know, yields have jumped enormously on a much higher debt stock with a much shorter maturity. So he's getting a, a bigger hit you know, to a bigger stock, and he's getting it a lot faster than any of his predecessors has faced. And that's why he had to react with such a, with such a dramatic consolidation um, just in a short space of time. It's very interesting. Nick, can I bring you back to this question on the impact of, of yesterday and, and the um, rapidity of impacts uh, given uh, the uh, effect on local government? So taking into account kind of adult social care, which is the kind of the single biggest part of upper tier local authority spending, but also kind of children's social care, which is the other big part. And then what we call neighborhood services, which are the other things like kind of libraries and parks and food inspections that they do. Taking the expected demand for all of those into account, we think that the funding provided yesterday is enough in the next two years to meet growing demands and inflationary pressures. However, that is also partly dependent on the new powers that government has given local authorities to raise council tax even higher. And clearly the ability of of councils to raise council tax uh, and the amount that they will bring in will depend on the area that they're in. And in general, uh, those... uh, Uh, local authorities in more deprived areas are going to raise less from rising, from increasing council tax. And therefore, the kind of financial sustainability of those councils will depend very much on the grant decisions that central government makes uh, in the next month or so. And so that's for the next two years. But beyond that, you know, as I said, this is not a kind of a a particularly generous settlement. And it, it certainly more money would need to be put in by future governments from 25, 26 onwards if they didn't want the kind of historic problems that we've seen in recent years in adult social care to continue. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Nick. And thank you all for joining us for this event uh, today. Can I ask you to join me in thanking the panel? Once again, thanks to SIPFA for helping support this event. And if you found it interesting, you may like to attend our next event, which is on establishing new public bodies, and that's on Monday at 1pm. And you can register now on our website. Thank you very much.